Coming up on this week's show, the Atari VCS is almost here. What is the big news from Sega? And we go behind the scenes on Bad Influence with Violet Berlin. This week's show is brought to you by Beer 52, the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 227, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show where we reminisce about the olden days of video games. We chat about classic consoles, classic games, and actually with everything going on in the world right now, not a bad time to live in the past for an hour or so, I think, is it, guys? Not at all. Have you guys <laughs> been playing a lot more games than usual? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I've been trying to kind of just, you know, live in my own little bubble at the moment and just playing some retro games. It's been quite therapeutic, I think. <laughs> well, at the, the moment, though, there does seem to be, even with like lockdown going on and everything, there is some really exciting gaming news going on now. In a moment, we're going to talk about um, this thing that maybe we... Slightly overhyped on last week's show, this mega announcement from Sega that everyone was talking about last week. And um, We think we know what it is, and everyone's been talking about it on our socials as well over the last couple of days. We've actually left it until like the last minute to record this show. Um, we're doing it like half past two on Thursday afternoon, just because we wanted to get this big Sega news in there. Is it a bit of a disappointment, though? Well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But today, we are going to be joined by someone who was a really big part of my childhood. Now, obviously, before the days of the internet, it was all about gaming magazines and, of course, gaming television shows. Now, about a month ago, we had Dominic Diamond on, who um, was behind one of the biggest gaming shows on British TV, Games Master. We got the inside story on that show. It was a brilliant episode. Everyone loved that. This week, we're going to be talking about the other show that was on at the same time. And that, of course, was bad influence because we're going to be joined by the fantastic Violet Berlin. Now, how incredible was bad influence back in the day? Oh, it was an awesome show. That the data blast at the end was fantastic, and you know we've had Andy Crane on the show, who was yes. kind of the co-presenter, and I just think it's great that we've got Violet on because it makes this kind of complete bad influence coverage. You know, it's great. And Violet was on, you know, a lot of shows back then. I think she actually did the first mainstream gaming reviews on television on a show that she did called Cool Cube back in around 1989, I think that was. Then she went on to Wackaday, that of course was a summer holiday institution for, you know, all British kids back then. And then Bad Influence that ran for, um, I think she was on it for about three or four years. Um, you know, those four series of that show. And it was on every week around um, half past four in the afternoon when he got home from school. And it was an interesting show because it was kind of 50-50 split between the latest video games that came out and they had kids that would do the reviews of the games. But also what I found interesting about Bad Influence is they also covered technology and computers on that show as well. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, Andy Crane actually expressed in his interview how much of an interest he had in technology, but also Violet at that point, got so kind of famous because she was meeting all these video game developers that she was included in quite a few games herself. So she was actually a choosable character in Micro Machines, and I remember one called Normality that she was in as well on the PC. And there's one episode of Bad Influence I always remember. That's when she was one of the first Western journalists to go along to the Nintendo 64 launch, and they broadcast that you know, on Bad Influence, her first impressions. And that system that you remember, the N64 was hyped and... God, it was like, you know, it's coming soon for about, what, three years? And then when we finally got to see it on TV, that was the first time I'd ever seen it. And you could tell because she's such a passionate 
gamer, her enthusiasm was kind of, you know, what all us kids were feeling as well at the time. So we're going to get loads of memories about those amazing days and bad influence with Violet Berlin. She'll be on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. So let's get into this big Sega announcement. Now, last week on the show, we were talking about this um, Japanese gaming magazine called Famitsu. Now, there's a journalist from there who released a little statement saying that he had some groundbreaking Sega news that was going to rock the industry. And it was kind of on the scale of Sony's PlayStation 5 announcement. And there was two announcements this week. Now, let's start with the first one. We're going to get a mini Game Gear. You see, I'm just going to say something before this. You guys were very optimistic. I was pessimistic, and I said Game Gear as well. <laughs> so you did, actually. You sometimes it helps you did to be pessimistic. Yeah. And I said, I said, Ravi's always right. On, like, he always kind of gets these, the things that he doesn't think it is right kind of thing, if that makes sense. <laughs> and he's actually got it right this time. And yeah, me and Dan, we were so optimistic. But, um, you know... the talking about the game gear mini i think it's cool and it's not going to be as expensive as i think people oh, it's, it's micro actually uh game gear, game micro. gear is it game, game gear ball, micro yeah. um i mean i think it's cool w- would would i play it if i bought it probably not it'll probably just sit on the shelf in its box and i really like that there is four variants and there's the four different colors but what i don't like is that they all come with different games i thought it yeah. would come with like, you know, they would all come with the same games, like 20 games, but it's just each different colour gets four different games, which I think is interesting. And it kind of gives you a reason to buy all four, but it might be a little bit of a cash grab as well. Yeah, the hardware itself, then let's talk about the actual physical Game Gear micros. And this is literally tiny. It is 80 millimetres by 43 millimetres with a 1.15 inch display. And you, you were talking to me before we started recording. That's even smaller than the Game Boy Micro, isn't it? Yeah, so it's got, is it one and a half inch or is it 1.15 inch? 1.15, it says here on this uh, article on the Oh Verge. my God, so it's literally an inch and a couple more millimetres wide. A bit screen. bigger than your thumbnail. <laughs> that, that's, that's insane when you think about it. I mean, eight centimetres wide as well. Like that is really, really tiny. So I don't, I really don't feel like they're intending people are really going to like take this out with them on the bus and stuff and have long journeys to play. But what's quite cool is if you buy the four pack for all four of them, you do get the magnifying glass, like the screen magnifying glass that you can clip to it. Which again, I mean, I remember being a kid and like the the Game Boy had a magnifying glass. (laughs) Yeah. Even just to read that screen with this. I mean, I, I imagine these are collector's items because they're going to have four different ones on here. You've got like a yeah. red model. There's a yellow one, a blue one, and a black one. Like you said, they've all got different games. You know, the black one's got Sonic the Hedgehog, Puyo Puyo 2, Outrun, Royal Stone. That's probably my preferred list of games. Um, the other one's got like Sonic Chaos. Uh, you've got sort of like yeah, Shining like Force games on the yellow yeah, one. It's very yellow Japanese. Uh, it's very Japanese-based, yeah. isn't it? And, and it's only available in Japan. Yeah, yeah, so there's been no news of it coming over here or into America or anything. But yeah, you're right, Ravi. They're really Japanese games as well. And it's got a single mono speaker. It's got a headphone jack as well, which, um, you know, I think Apple and uh, Samsung could learn a trick or two off, off Sega. You can still get a <laughs> headphone jack even on a tiny little device like this. You can charge yeah. it over USB. Uh, the good news, though, for Game Gear fans is that now you can run it off two triple a batteries and i imagine the battery yeah probably won't (laughs) die in like two hours like it used to i was um interested because i thought actually if we look at the history of micro consoles that sega's done really badly because it had the at games one for ages and ages and lots of third party stuff and then it finally released the nice mega drive which uh, people are using now but um 
yeah, they're still kind of dipping their toes into this area, aren't they? And I can imagine this being in in that kind of region. There's going to be so many rip-offs of these made in China. Oh, yeah, 100%. I'm just hoping now that the natural progression, now they've done the Mega Drive themselves, now they're doing the Game Gear themselves, natural progression's got to be that Saturn. Go on, go get the Sega Saturn in six months' time. <laughs> you know what, what though? For. You remember when we, we were talking about that like a year or so ago, and then we kind of came to the... The conclusion that probably the Saturn wasn't a big enough success for them to warrant doing that. But the fact that they're doing the Game Gear, which, you know, wasn't yeah. a big seller in any market, really, probably does lead a bit more optimism that maybe they are going to do like a, you know, a Saturn and a, a Dreamcast follow up just for the fans, maybe. And the thing is, the Saturn did do really well in Japan. I only yeah. actually found out this week and I never knew this and I call myself a bloody retro gamer. The Saturn actually did better than the N64 in Japan. Wow, which oh, I, yeah. Never, I yeah, and I, I never knew that it did. Apparently, it did better, better numbers. Not worldwide, obviously, it, it mm. got crushed worldwide. But in Japan, the Saturn was really supported. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do see a Saturn Micro, but Japan exclusive. Yeah, so there's four Game Gear Micro consoles, and they're all available for pre-order now. I mean, the 4,980 yen, which um, I think works out at about 50 American dollars, and they reckon these are going to be available by October the 6th. Like you said, Joe, there's no word on whether there's going to be a Western release of it yet. I mean, again, I think because it's Sega's 60th birthday, it's obviously a little kind of token gesture for the fans. The fact that it is playable, I mean, you know, this article here on The Verge as well says, you know, we're talking about the company that released a non-functional plastic Sega CD and a 32X for the Mega Drive Mini. So they are known just to put things out just to be like, you know, fun little items. The fact that you can actually play it, I can't imagine it's going to be the most comfortable thing to play. But have you got any interest in this, Joe? I mean, as our resident Sega fan, do you think you'd like a pack of yeah, these? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be available on Amazon, so I am going to trek check if I can actually get it delivered over here and I think I will buy the red one. Well, that wasn't the only Sega news then. We did get another one that's kind of focused on the arcades and according to the Metro, this was the big announcement then, Ravi. Yeah, so this was called Sega Fog and the idea is that you can take these Japanese arcade games and and, and kind of play them at home, which kind of makes sense during the uh, pandemic crisis at the moment because I can't imagine arcades are going to be massively full of people but to me it's just a another kind of cloud gaming service another another stadia and i've i've been using stadia recently actually because it's free and uh man the selection of games is awful on that and um, is it laggy as well bit bit of lag big bit of input lag if you're not using the stadia controller but that's uh, free at the moment and you know a lot of people were saying that was going to change the world and now no one even knows that it's free you know, so it's <laughs> interesting it to see yeah how these cloud I, services go i feel like personally i feel like that's more disappoint disappointing than the game gear micro like if yeah. that's the actual big news because of uh, it's just like arcades are dead in the western world like they're just not a thing like but so in japan, I know they're, still, they're still very prevalent aren't they yeah they are still very big in japan i went to the sega arcade when i was when i was over there um you know and there was you know there was a lot of big sega arcades and stuff which was cool when it was all fighting games and stuff so i guess that's pretty cool to have but at the same time these are fighting games which are available on home console yeah so it doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me to be able to be like oh yeah now i can play it at home kind of thing so especially if if you're remotely playing an arcade machine and i imagine you're probably still going to have to put like virtual money into it to play it if it's an arcade machine yeah that's a very good point actually they so may monetize it somehow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're going to they're gonna be like, or you could buy the game. <laughs> yeah, because you're right. I mean, back then when you played Virtua Fighter in the arcades, 
it didn't look as good at home. So there was a reason yeah, to play it on the arcades. But now, yeah. I mean, you get it on the PlayStation 4 or something. Yeah, I guess the only reason now to play it in the arcade is the, the atmosphere. Because yeah. obviously there was, there was a real atmosphere to it. Um, and you can still smoke inside as well. So there was like that kind of like old school atmosphere. And it was like... That's probably why it's called Fog. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so, you know, and you're obviously going to lose, completely lose that atmosphere if you're doing it at home. So it, I don't know, for a for a 60th anniversary, as big as the PlayStation 5 announcement, it's a bit of a strange one for and me. I, and I guess it's also like uh, Stadia is like, you don't have the hardware, so you stream the game. So I yeah. guess it's like, you might not have the powerful enough arcade hardware to run this, but you can still stream it onto your laptop or whatever. Yeah, true. I must admit, yeah, it doesn't really get me all that excited. I think, you know, the, the days of kind of really wanting the arcade experience at home, I mean, you know, in terms of retro arcades, absolutely, but modern arcades, it's like you said, they're not really that much different to playing home consoles these days. So if that was Sega's big announcement, because, I mean, last week we were hearing the announcement was going to come on Thursday the 4th of June, which is the day we're recording this. So you just watch, we'll finish recording it, then about half an hour they'll be like, yeah, Dreamcast <laughs> yeah. 2's coming out. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? I just want to note something as well. It really made me laugh. I saw somebody who I used to work with on Facebook going on about it last week, and he was just like, oh my God, Sega are doing a new announcement. Wouldn't it be amazing? And I commented on it, and I was like, oh, apparently it's, um, you know, Microsoft might be purchasing them, because yeah. um, that's what we thought it might be. And he was like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if they did a follow-up console uh, console to the Mega Drive, like a Mega Drive 2? And I was just like, I'm, I'm not even going to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> you never guess what? I've got a Mega Drive 2. I've had it. Oh, I've had yeah. it. <laughs> and then like, somebody else commented on it and was just like, a new Mega Drive would be amazing and uh, or like a follow-up. And I was just like, Oh my days. <laughs> <laughs> Don't associate with this guy anymore. Got him oh, off yeah. I, I, they've just released an article on Ars Technia and it's saying that the Japanese arcade streaming will also be used as data centers. So the fact that these machines aren't being used at the moment will kind of be able to use their power, but maybe they can mine some Atari tokens on there or something. <laughs> Well, let's move on to Atari then. I mean, obviously, if we do get any more big Sega news between now and next week's show, we'll let you know about it here on the podcast next week. The Atari VCS console, the uh, the new 2020 model, is now in the hands of the beta testers. Yeah, so um, they've got a little program at the moment, which is kind of the Atari VCS VIP testers. And what they've actually done is they've sent out uh, quite a few VCSs. So there are footage of people playing VCSs online, and they've kind of got them on YouTube. There's footage of just a few kind of standard games. Uh, Unsung Warriors is one at the moment. They've got a demonstration of people playing Ant Stream as well. So um, Sensible Soccer, I saw on there. Uh, <laughs> a few other kind of older titles. But um, it just seems like they're playing the console, but they can't release that much about it at the moment or, or really show the menu systems and stuff like that. But they can show the gameplay footage. They're also talking about a few accessories that are available as well. And these guys will be playing with the accessories, but it's still a little bit hush hush, but there are kind of bits of footage coming out and, uh, you know, lots of leaks and stuff. Hopefully we'll see a little bit more soon because they're saying the first batch of 500 is being delivered while well, going out of the factory halfway through June. So surely we should start seeing a little bit more over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so they're saying at the moment these videos are for demonstration purposes only and they're not to be taken as like the official kind of release, but also they're going to release a full lineup of games uh, soon. 
which is interesting. It's 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 good to see that they've finally um actually got there, guys. You know? Yeah, because it did have a lot of naysayers, a lot of doubters. So you know they've proved those people wrong. <laughs> well, like me. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to remind everyone, Joe. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Now, it does seem like every week at the moment we're finding out about, you know, a, a long-lost game that's suddenly resurfaced and the source code has been found. It seems there's a lot of old NES games getting found at the moment. And uh, this one I thought was particularly interesting. A game from 1990 that was based on the Tom Cruise movie Days of Thunder has been found and restored from a bunch of old floppy disks. Yeah, so I know a little bit about this one. So a guy called Chris Chris Obeth, I think it was, was a programmer for Mindscape in 1990. And he passed away, sadly, a couple of years ago. Hmm. And from what I understand, somebody was going through like his old belongings and stuff. And I think they found, is it 40 floppy disks or something? Right. Like that? Yeah, around 50, and I think. Yeah. I think it was 50 floppy disks. And one of them was called Nintendo Hot Rod Taxi Final. So obviously, like, that's not. I don't think that is an actual NES game. So they've popped it in, and yeah, it's it's a lost game. It's the Days of Thunder game, um, and I'm not too sure what they've done with it. I think the Video Game History Foundation have now got it. It's just crazy. Like, I don't know what the story is behind it. Like, I don't know why it didn't come out or anything like that. I've never seen the film myself, so I don't know if it was the case where the film was a flop. <laughs> so they just decided not to bring the game out, because sometimes back then the games would come out you know, a year or six months after the film would come out. So I don't really know what the story is behind that. And especially well, yeah. when, when you got to 1990, it was kind of like, you know, the 16-bit era was kind of coming in then as well, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So I'm not too sure what kind of happened there with it. But I, from far as I know, it's a fully functional game. Like, the game was finished. Yeah, so what they did was they found uh, split files on all of okay. these discs, and they were all encrypted as well. So they managed to decrypt them. I don't know how, maybe brute force decryption or something. <laughs> and then... They managed to extract it, put all these split files together, and it was a total new game. But they've also said they're going to um, uh, eventually publish a source code, which is really okay. interesting, and they'll make a, a ROM available uh, for everybody to play as well, which is oh, awesome. fantastic. Yeah, And they've got the permission of his family to actually release that. It does make you wonder like, kind of how many other finished games are just kind of lying around on hard disks or old floppy disks in attics or drawers and stuff like that. There's going to be so many of them still in the hands of developers. You know, even when they're still alive, we talked to a lot of people who, you know, th- there was games that we were so incredibly hyped for as kids that never saw the light of day. And then we, we often have the programmers on the show and we're like, you know, have you still got a copy of that? And they're like, oh yeah, there might be a copy of it up in the attic, like the, the only surviving copy in the world. It might be up there on an old disc, I haven't bothered to back it up. Often they don't really see the value in it, but obviously the fans, when we find out about something like this, it's like, you know, like gold dust. Yeah, and I guess sometimes as well with like, like you say, like they don't see the value in it. Sometimes I can imagine they don't want to get their uh, their wrists slapped by yeah. the, uh, the, the, owning com- the companies that own it and stuff like that. So I guess it's difficult, but it's cool when it's like old enough for it to not, for nobody to really, like be bothered about it any big wigs be bothered about it i guess yeah i can't imagine yeah. like tom, know, cruise tom cruise is gonna take it upon himself to sue the people who release it <laughs> tom cruise on one side nintendo on the other yeah you wouldn't be sure yeah. now before we chat to the amazing violet berlin let's give a huge thank you to this week's supporter our very good friends at beer 52 now summer 
is finally here, guys. I know today it's actually looking a bit cold and wet outside. It is British summer. Uh, but apparently the heat wave is going to be back here next weekend. Is there anything better, even though we're on lockdown at the moment, than sitting in the garden, maybe with your Nintendo Switch in your hand, or if you're Joe, your Atari Lynx, and a good beer <laughs> in the sunshine? It doesn't get better than that, does it? No, it doesn't, especially when it's Beer 52 beers and they're sending you amazing beers like raspberry milkshake and stuff like that. <laughs> well, I've actually got um, the latest Beer 52 box here. I'm looking through some of the things we've got in this month. Uh, salted caramel and chocolate and milk stout. Which sounds okay. really interested in that one. We've got a few uh, fruit beers as well. We've got Old Engine Oil, Black Ale. There's a real selection in these. Now, the idea is Beer 52, they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club, and they've got over 150,000 members. And what they do is they send you a brand-new case every month, and each month has got a different theme. I mean, over like the last few months, has been like New Zealand, South Africa, uh, USA European boxes, Korean box of beer they had recently too. And we want you to try them out for yourself. Each case is delivered direct to your doorstep. No need to leave the house. If you want to get stocked up, now's your chance to do it. So we want to give you a free case of eight craft beers, sourced and curated from the best breweries on the planet. All you have to do is tap this into your browser right now. Claim this offer quick while it's on, beer52.com forward slash retro. All you have to do is cover the £5.95 for postage. And of course, in the box, you also get a snack. This month, we've got... um, We've got smoked barbecue corn. That sounds really nice. And also you get the Ferment magazine as well, which is actually a magazine they put in there that's really interesting. You don't realise how interesting beer is until you start looking through this really good. And, of course, the Beer 52, you can customise it as well. Like, you know, if dark beer is not your thing. I know, Ravi, you're quite into your pale ales, aren't you, your lighter drinks? Oh, yeah. I, I love it. I, it's like, ooh, what beer am I going to try tonight? Yes, you can choose a light option if that's your flavour. And, of course, with it, you can pause or cancel your account at any time if you change your mind. We just want you to give it a try. So do this right now. Your first case of eight beers for £5.95 postage only on us. And you'll be helping out the podcast by doing it. Beer52.com forward slash retro. And also a good time to give a big shout to our favourite people in the world, our incredible patrons. Now, I can't believe it's been almost a month since our last patrons hangout. We're going to do one again next Sunday. So we're getting ready for that. This is where we all just get together. We get a load of us on um, Google Meetups and we just essentially chat about retro games. I'll be cracking open a Beer 52 and uh, showing off a few of our, our recent gets. So I've actually got my hands on um, the Atari Jaguar flashcard this week so uh, beer 52 and the atari jaguar flashcard that is my plan for the weekend coming up so uh, i'll not be talking about that on the stream next week i've got even i'll I'll get some um... cpus out or something like that (laughs) yeah ravi's always got one of them within arm's reach Um, a big shout as well to james from retro hq he's a listener to the podcast um and he's the one that sorted me out with the atari jaguar flashcard so uh, thank you very much for that and let's give a huge thank you to this week's supporters we try and get through as many as we can thank you to our good friend retro hammer Tony Orr, Ross McPhee, Peter Gioffrey, and Darren Lomax, who all made donations into the running of the show by supporting us on Patreon. And if you'd like to do the same, of course, you'll get a shout in a future episode of the podcast. We've got loads of different tiers as well, and we would love you to join us next Sunday evening for our patrons hangout happening on Sunday, the 14th of June. Um, At around 8pm we normally do it, so all the links will be on our Patreon page. It'd be lovely to see you there. Right then, let's get into this week's special guest, getting the backstory on the legendary Bad Influence with Violet Berlin. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we are so excited about the guest that we've got this week. You know, speaking of someone who, as a kid, religiously watched Bad Influence every week, uh, usually around my grandma's at tea time, love that show. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the Retro Hour podcast the fantastic Violet Berlin. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Now, before we get into um, stories of your time on, on Bad Influence, hopefully you can remember <laughs> about it. I know it was a while ago now, but I thought it might be nice just to kind of get a bit of a background on your kind of history with video games and computers. What kind of started your interest in it then? Do you remember? Well, I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in computers, really. You know, anything that was sort of sci-fi or technological. I was, I think, one of three girls in my year at school who chose the option to do computer science which you know nowadays would would be mad but also to put it in context back then you had the option of you know home economics computer science woodwork mm. and um you know there was one computer between the entire class and we had to wait in turns and i think i got on it once in the entire year but um but yeah it just captivated my interest and i, I remember i was absolutely dying to get on that computer and uh, when i got on it I, I you know sat there and there was that blinking cursor and I just typed, you know, hello, you know, can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I hadn't, obviously hadn't listened in class to what computers really were or what they did. But it had always been something that I thought was a bit magical. Well, what was your first system that you got at home? I didn't, actually, until I was 21. So uh, the first game I played was a calculator game. Um, that uh, we had this calculator and you could play music on it and you could play this sort of... Um, kind of space invaders invaders game numbers invaders game where the numbers came up it was brilliant the numbers came up and you had to tap the keys and you had to match you know over and over again to match the number that was coming towards you and I became brilliant at that and became completely obsessed with it and I think I think from memory I probably got to a point where I could just keep going and there was like no end and I could just keep going and going and going and it never you know I had to make a a decision to stop playing because it couldn't defeat me. Um, You'd still be playing it now otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Another version of me still is. Um, and we didn't didn't have computers at home. I didn't even have a TV at home growing up. Um, so I didn't actually even get a TV until um, I started working in television. And I didn't get a video game console until the third show in TV where a guy in my... Um, production office we'd all come together to make this new tv show called call cube and the guy said oh we're doing this kids live tv show my nephews play you know this nintendo this nes system a lot we should do reviews on it now i was the person i was the presenter on that show who sort of you know kind of did my own research and kind of was i was more of a writer and researcher and presenter the other presenters would come and sort of read other people's scripts so i was kind of more embedded in the show so they said, oh, well, Violet, why don't you do this? You can take it home and you can work out what these, you know, computer games are and and kind of like work out what to say about them and, who, you know, what kids to get in and all the rest of it. So it's like my responsibility. And so I was given this kind of grey box, you know, the NES, hmm. and, it, and uh, took it home and plugged it in. And I was just completely besotted with it. And... That year, I, you know, I was working so hard on that show. It was like two live shows a week and I was like run ragged, you know, kind of behind the scenes, writing it and presenting it and all the rest of it. And the only time I really relaxed was when I was playing Castlevania. 
<laughs> Amazing. <laughs> well, actually, it's quite interesting that you said then you didn't have a TV growing up. What kind of what made you want to get into television and, and journalism then? Well, it wasn't ever really my aim um, directly. Uh, I was completely obsessed with stories growing up, which is hardly surprising when you consider I didn't have a you know TV or a computer or anything like that. And um, I read a lot, and I was obsessed. I was completely obsessed with um, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, and uh, so. I ended up going to university to study English language and Anglo-Saxon and Old Norse, that's basically the subjects that Tolkien taught at university. And I managed to get a course where I was taught by the people that Tolkien taught. So that's how obsessed I was with Lord of the Rings. And um, I sort of thought that if I could like get to the absolute root of the earliest stories and myths and understand what a story was, that would help me to write my own stories and help me to kind of understand the best way of storytelling. That was my sort of driver, if you like. And uh, then when I kept, but I didn't, you know, when you're at university, you don't really think like that, you know, that's why I went there. But then I just sort of went for university without going to a single careers fair or thinking ahead in any way, shape or form. And then it got to the end of university and people started saying, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I sort of was like, well, I, you know, I guess I want to be a writer and I want to sort of write stories. And so and I want to write children's stories because I decided by then, you know, I was really into kind of um, young adult fiction and children's stories. And I said, well, the sensible thing to do, I guess, is I should like get to know my audience a bit better. So maybe I should get a job in children's television and then I could be around kids and kind of understand what they like and and kind of create stuff for them, maybe dramas, that sort of thing. And then from then, after I've had a bit of experience of that, maybe that will help me with my book career. That's kind of how 18-year-old Violet was thinking. You know, any sort of normal person, looking, like, looking back, you realise, like, that is completely pie-in-the-sky idea. What do you mean my second choice of career is in, <laughs> in television? I'll just go and get a job in television. You know, like, that's a simple thing to do. But okay, and you know what? What life has taught me is that sometimes, like, if you don't realise there are barriers, you can walk through them. Because yeah. I like completely naively, like, wrote off to some TV companies, never having had a TV or particularly watched TV. Went to the interview. The, I think the guy was quite. Actually, I went to the interview dressed as Batgirl. That's how out of it I was. Like, not even dressed, like, like not in the kind, you're probably imagining some kind of like, uh, you know, kind of um, fancy dress costume, Batgirl. No, no, dressed as my own interpretation of Batgirl, like with kind wow. of like this kind of like this image in my head. I was completely out there. But actually, um, I guess uh, it worked because essentially he said, um, that he liked my ideas. He was asking me for ideas. And I'd never watched really a, a, a live kids show or any kind of kids show. The interview was for a show called Wide Awake Club, WAC 90. And uh, I just sort of came out with these ideas. And he, I guess they must have been really original because I hadn't watched TV, so no one else had done them. And then he asked me to do a bit of writing. And then I got the job. And yeah, so that's how I ended up in television. And your first appearance was uh, on there with Carol Vorderman as well, right? Oh, so, yeah, so that was because on, on Wide Awake Club, you know, I started off doing the kids' news and then sort of used to write little comedy sketches. You know, when the brilliant thing about kids' TV is, or certainly magazine shows, is that you get to do a bit of everything, you know. You, um, you, you know, you might do a bit of news or you might do a bit of comedy or you might do a bit of, um, you know, kind of like an animal 
animal, something about a bat, something about, uh, you know, like technology, whatever it might be. And one thing I was tasked to do was to write, I used to write for Carol Vorderman's had a slot on WAC 90, where she, it used to be called something like Carol's Lab, and she'd do experiments in science. And so I wrote myself into a sketch. I didn't really. Uh, we had this thing about germs and all these kids had to come on and be germs and hold up signs of germs. And uh, because I would look quite young, I looked very young and I was the smallest person there. They wanted someone to lead the children as a germ. So I kind of had to <laughs> dress, up as a, dress up as a kid or just actually just come on as myself. And I, and I was a kid, really. And, um, and uh, you know, be a germ, be a germ on one of Carol's uh, items. That was my first thing. <laughs> my second appearance was when after that, I started working for Whack, Whack-A-Day, Timmy Mallet's Whack-A-Day. And I used to write all of that and be behind the scenes and find all the Mallet's Mallet kids and all that sort of stuff. And... Um, I, I came up with this idea for um, a slot on the show where he read the letters and instead of and the way he would get the letters was his, his post box came on and the post box would give him the letters through the through its slot sort of thing. Yeah. But then we needed someone to be the post box. So that was me as well. A German the post box, your first appearances. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but do you know what? Do you know what? The, I can remember, you know, the weird thing about doing that and, you know, the excitement of live TV. It's so exciting. Um you know the cameras and the lights, and suddenly you realise you are going out live, and and it, it it makes you feel weird. As soon as it's kind of like you look at the red light, it makes you feel weird. And I think it was interesting that I got that experience from inside a post box. <laughs> um, you know, you're just standing there on live TV, but you're like no one can see you. It's quite a weird feeling, but it gives you this kind of sense, or it kind of acclimatises you in a way to that to that kind of. Uh, that mood, that feeling, that environment. And I do happen to think that a lot of uh, TV and radio presenting, not all of it, obviously, but a significant proportion of it, is kind of being acclimatised to the environment. And Mm. I think that um, anyone who does... You know, and you can tell this because so many people do their own podcasts and read and TV shows and all sorts on the internet and Twitter. Back then, we thought it was some sort of magical thing that, you know, oh, if you went on telly, you were a person who went on telly. But actually, um, it's kind of this, it's access to the technology and the means, and then it's fine. But, but you know, it was a bit of, um, bit of a revelation to me. And it's hard to describe to people, like maybe you're not from the UK, but just what a big deal, like, you know, Wackaday was. I mean, that was religious viewing in the school summer holidays. Everyone watched it, and it was a massive show. And it always looked, that energy kind of came across as well watching it. It looked like it was loads of fun to work on. It was hectic to work on. I mean, the thing is, people always think that, you know, uh, you know TV, is got, there's loads of money in TV. And there is, I think, but not in kids' TV. And there never really has been. You know, kids' TV has always been like the baby, you know, brother, the baby sister of uh, grown-up TV. And, um, you know, doesn't get the money in ad revenues. And so, essentially, you know, Wackaday, the, the, the period that Wackaday was on, it was Timmy Malik presenting me doing everything behind the scenes, making the gunge at nine o'clock at night, you know, whatever is required for a kids' TV show, looking up the gunge recipe first because no one tells you, you know, and a producer, basically, and that was it. So every morning, religiously live, and I used to have nightmares about, um, you know, that, that I'd missed the show because, you know, if you get the bus late for work, you've, like, missed, you know, missed it sort of thing. Yeah. or You know, so it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was an adventure, well, where did the idea of bad influence come from then, and how did you get involved? Uh, so, at the point of Wackaday, I hadn't really, you know, played uh, any games or anything yet, uh, but I'd sort of cut my teeth on television, uh, 
And uh, to talk about bad influence, really, we need to sort of rewind a little bit to talk about Core Cube, yeah. which um, I think I just mentioned with the cast, you know, that I said that this is a show called Core Cube and I started playing, um, I got an NES. But basically, uh, from playing that NES, I became completely obsessed with video games and I loved them and um, base did did live review uh, did live reviews of games with kids every week twice a week actually for about a year and uh as you can imagine this made me something of an aficionado and after the nes we got in all the other systems and you know i got right across it and incidentally they were the first games you know regular games coverage on uk tv and they were really popular and then after um Call Cube finished, I went off to do a BBC One show called Wild Bunch, which is a wild animals show. And I did that for a series. And, you know, it was fine, but it wasn't quite me. And after that, suddenly, the series ended, and suddenly everything was quiet. I had like, nothing on whatsoever. And I was living in London. And you know what it's like in London, if you've got no work. And you know, you're in a city, busy city, you've got no work. You've got no money. You can't go out. There's nothing happening. And I used this time to uh, play the uh, play. My, I had, but I did have all these consoles from the Cool Cube days. So I was playing all these these games and everything. And I just decided that I'd really love to, you know, do a do more with games or do a game show. And I actually applied for a couple of game shows, but I didn't get. And meanwhile, bought myself a computer and like became the person that all my friends knew, all my friends knew, was the person who knew about computers and games. That was it. And then one of them heard about a show, Bad Influence, that was being considered up in Yorkshire TV that was for, that was going to cover games and computers. And they immediately thought of me. I got in touch with a guy there called Richard Maud. And I said, look, I, you know, I can, I don't mind what I'd love to work on this show. I don't mind what I do. I'm happy to, you know, research. I'm happy to find the games. I'm happy to present the show. Um, you know, I can do any of this. And I didn't really expect much to come of it. And in fact, me and my boyfriend of the time, who moved to Manchester by this point, we had, we were sort of running out of money and we decided to go on a, go on a, a, sort of three-month tour around Eastern Europe to spend the last of the money that we had, you know, our savings, mm. and then come back and, like, get sensible jobs. That's what we decided to do. And um, Richard Maud uh, sort of messaged me and said, oh, come in and see me at Yorkshire TV. And I said, oh, I'm about to go away, but I'll come and see you. So on the day that I was due to go around Eastern Europe in this old car, we loaded up the car, we drove to Yorkshire TV. Um, my boyfriend waited for me in the, in, in the Ford, I went to, to the bar with Richard Maud and had a chat about my interest in games and computers and all the rest of it, and that I'd do anything on the show if they wanted it. Then I went, got back in the car. We went off. We had the whole um, adventure around Eastern Europe. We came back, like, ready to open the papers and look for typing jobs or whatever it was that we could get, because I decided that I wasn't really going to get another TV job again. And um, uh, I got a call from Yorkshire TV saying, oh, will you come in? You know, we want you to come and work on the show. Will you come in? So I was like, oh, yeah, but they hadn't told me what my job was. So I just assumed that my job would be to, you know, just uh, you know, find the games or whatever. I mean, I wasn't unhappy with that. I was delighted with that. I mean, I yeah. thought I was going to get free games. You know, games would cost a fortune. I'd been playing the same, 
you know, few games I managed to save from the days of Core Cube over and over and over again. You know, we'd like lent the console to my sister so, so that she'd be lured into buying Mega Man 2 so that we could go and play <laughs> it over at her house. You know, this was these were the dire straits we were in. And, uh, you know, games were like 40 or 50 quid. They were like, an, you know, an investment, weren't they? So um, I was like jumping around for joy at the free games and the works. So I wouldn't have to go and do typing or whatever. I went over there I went, and they said, oh, it's like this, this lunch, this production lunch. And there was me and Andy Crane and, you know, all the people on the, like, aha. And literally over lunch, somebody mentioned, I think it might have been the guy who ran the show, like, so, and I knew present, you know, and our presenters, Violet and Andy, and that was when I knew that I was presenting it. No way. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, ver- the name Bad Influence itself is uh, very much kind of talking about the parents' attitude at the time and the attitude of the press. Um, was the idea of the show to kind of change this attitude and maybe present games in a different light? Yeah, I think like Richard Moore, this guy that I met uh, when I when I first went for the interview. I mean, he explained. I think I think could be wrong, but I think Bad Influence might have been his idea, uh, or certainly he he told me about it. And it was this idea. I guess it was a double pun on bad, bad meaning good and everything, but that they firmly didn't believe that games were a bad influence. Um, but they also saw this as a, you know, it was a Julia Tomorrow's World was the way it was seen, but the way in being through games. And yeah, they no, no one in, on that, you know, on that show, they were kind of like basically technophiles and, and they loved, wanted to make good, entertaining, factual shows for kids. That was it, really. And it was Richard Maud, incidentally, who I think that he, it was his idea for Data Blast as well. You know, the Data Blast at the yeah. end of the show where... Um, uh, the, 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 they would uh, put up like pages and pages and pages of information over the closing credits, and then people would have to video it vi- vi- with their VHS machines, and then rewind, and then you could pause and unpause and read all these like it's early internet <laughs> individual <laughs> pages of information. Like and a free magazine, that- really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I tell you what, I don't think they quite realised how much work it would be to put it together because you made an entire TV show and then you have to create every week like 40 pages of cheats or, you know. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was a, it, I think that was him as well. But um, it was a real, uh, it was a great team at Bad Influence. Really, really fantastic. Did you see yourselves in competition with Games Master or was it a completely different audience? Um, we were aware that other people saw us or some other people, maybe the games magazines and so forth, might have seen us in competition with um, Games Master. We, it, you know, we, it was, yeah, it was a totally separate because, you know, our competition were other kids TV shows that were going on at the same time. We never specifically saw ourselves as a game show. You know, we were a factual entertainment show for kids. Another, I think, really key thing was that, you know, as a, we went out on Children's ITV, you know, we had 5 million viewers a week, which when I say it now, it's hard, you know, I know that people go on YouTube and might get 20 billion for one stream or something internationally. But now, you know, media is so fragmented nowadays, hmm. that it's hard to imagine, like, you know, 5 million people at the same time as for a live event, as it were, um, just sitting and, and and watching one thing and so it, that's something that everyone's talking about isn't it so as 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 what I'm the point I'm trying to make here is that we were broadcasting in the truest sense of it so we were trying to reach the absolute widest audience and part of that remit an absolutely crucial part of that remit was that we had to get half and half boys and girls 
So, and we did, we did for the first few series, we did. Um, and everyone was really, really pleased with that, you know, because pe- they weren't absolutely convinced, you know, computers and get, you know, computers and games and all the rest of it, considering the context of the era when it was mostly boys who were playing games or who were perceived to be playing games. Um, but but um, Games Master was in a kind of a youth slot. It was seemed to be mostly aimed at boys, teenage boys. So it's a different age, different slot, different time. It was very much sort of a game show, a games entertainment show. So, yeah, so we were very, very different shows. And, I mean, I guess there was some sort of, there was a little bit of, I guess, a sense that maybe we weren't as cool as Games Master or whatever, because, you know, we weren't. But um, I guess we also were able to get some really, when you look back at it, you see the solid journalism and you see the, the real insights into the games industry. That, which we managed to. So we did what we did really well and they did what they did really well. I think that's the uh, that's the message there, yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned then about the fact that you covered technology as well as just gaming and, you know, that really interested me as a kid. I mean, I, I vividly remember an episode where you were at like a, a big music concert and you were showing kind of how all the all the lighting rig and the, the sound equipment worked and there's one where you planned like a fireworks display that I remember as well and uh, silicon graphics workstations on the show so I mean it was actually you know like you said a 50-50 split between gaming and technology was it was that a decision from the outset then to cover tech as well as gaming yeah absolutely and and you know and it was it's brilliant I'm so pleased you remember all of those things that I'm so pleased about that <laughs> the, uh, the the fireworks I think were might have actually been a proper live show yeah. um, that we did we might have done that actually out live I've got a vague feeling and Jean-Michel Jarre was the big music that concert it. that I went to and uh, we covered things like early morphing the funniest one I think looking back it's, it's hard to say which one's quite the funniest one you know with hindsight is um when I was in San Francisco and we did this thing about um GPS and how GPS might work in the future and there was a I met this um blind girl and they and and the university had come up with this way of using gps to tell to help you navigate an environment so that you know you she'd put on headphones and it would sort of say the you know the cafe is to your left and she would basically be given voice directions and we were sort of saying how marvelous this all is and <laughs> this poor little you know sort of teenage girl she had this giant backpack for all the gps equipment <laughs> <laughs> these huge headphones you know it was <laughs> and you know and uh and there's me reporting on it. And of course, now, we, you know, not many years later, we all had it on our phones. Yeah. Well, that was a really big thing as well when you went out to America and we could kind of, you know, see you in America and going over to America then was a, a, a real big deal. And it was like going to another world, especially when you were talking to Dave Perry and stuff about the um, a new Earthworm gym title. I love it that you remember all this. It's brilliant. Um, shared history. Yeah, that. but can I tell you the thing that most sticks in my mind when I think about interviewing Dave Perry about Earthworm Gin? This is, this is my embarrassing story. We went to the beach to do some part of the filming and we had to leave his office and we went to the beach and I was a bit in awe. This was like, it's very tall, tall Dave, American Dave Perry and his, uh, you know, who was all the rage about Earthworm Jim. And it was a really busy road. And the cars were going in the wrong direction, of course, because it's America. I mean, you know, the right direction for America, the wrong direction for me. And um, we went across the road and without even thinking, 
I put out my hand and held his hand like he was my dad to cross the road. <laughs> I must have thought I was mad or, or, or propositioning him. I don't know. Did he say anything or was it just like, yeah, let's not mention that? <laughs> I, don't think he, I don't think he did. I think I just probably just pretended it was, you know, you know these things, you just move on, don't you? Like, oh. <laughs> well, I love the stuff that you did in America because, I mean, you actually, I mean, we'll get on to your kind of virtual violet days um, soon, but also, I mean, in the early episodes, there was uh, Z Wright from America who did like a, a report every week about what was happening stateside. And like Ravi said, it felt like, you know, you were seeing into like a, another world that we, you know, because the world felt a lot bigger back then, kind of pre-internet. I mean, where did the idea of getting him to do the reports and stuff come from then? Uh, that, that was Patrick Titley, who was the executive producer of the programme. And I think, and I remember he he had just decided, I think, from early days that he wanted to have American reports and that he would just get an American reporter. Um, I don't know why, maybe because it was cool or maybe partly because it might be, you know, you fly out there and your presenter's already there. I don't know. I don't know. But maybe maybe kind of our man on the spot he thought would be good. And um, I know um, D. Wright was an actor. Uh, and uh, I think they they did some casting and they looked at a few and I've I've got a vague memory of Patrick saying that they were actually looking for a, a woman and Z and that she sent her show reel in and Z Wright was also in the same show and they preferred Z so they got him on but um uh yeah but but we didn't really have much contact with Z we saw his reports and that was it he was an actor and um and the film crew would fly out there and in the summer with Patrick and do a bunch of films and then they'd come back and then we'd introduce and that was about the extent of um, link we had unlike uh, the other um, contributor to the show Nam Rude the mm. cheats guy Andy Weir he was very much you know in the studio and uh, you know he came up and did the filming every week with us and stayed over in the same hotel and I went me and Andy Weir went out drinking every night for the entire entire run of the show <laughs> He was a great character as well, Namrud. I loved him. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was a fantastic character, and uh, uh, you know, Patrick used to always joke about how he he was in the um, he was in the I think the Royal Shakespeare Company or something. It was a Shakespearean act. He'd done Shakespearean proper Shakespearean acting before he was Namrud. And incidentally, since he was Namrud, he's been in you know Emmerdale and Coronation Street. I think he's the only uh, fact fans. Uh, Andy Weir. I think might be the only actor to have been in both the live, all the live soap, you know, you know, the, the soaps, the soap operas have like live episodes every yeah. now and again. He's been in all, you know, one for each of them, you know, like, um, you know, Coronation Street and Emmerdale, maybe even EastEnders, I don't know. But yeah, he's uh, he's a proper actor. We used to always joke about how he's a proper actor and he's like doing our show. He's <laughs> <laughs> saying scrotty fertilizer and all it's that, is it? Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he shaved his head for the show as well, which we thought, all thought was very admirable. And it remind me of kind of the characters that you get in like Crystal Maze or one of these kind of adventure shows, you know. Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, he was actually. He came from the the um the script was all written by Patrick, the exec producer. But I um, mean, you know, Andy turned up, you know, having shaved his head for the role. You know, he, that all came from Andy and uh, and and developed that that character. And uh, and yeah, really, uh, he's one of the first things people always mention about the show when they speak to me. So he obviously made a massive impression. When Bad Influence started, it was the Mega Drive and SNES. They were the new consoles. And then by the end of it, it was the PlayStation and N64. So did you feel like it was a real rapid change in time? Do you know what? I kind of didn't feel it at the time. It just felt 
normal like you know it, it felt like you know things were moving on I guess when you're reporting on tech the whole time and you know I was so across you know games you know I had a pile of mega drive games that reached the ceiling in my house and um you know we would used to joke when's it going to reach the ceiling and it did you know the snes games <laughs> less so because you know the mega drive published anything didn't it <laughs> let's be yeah. honest <laughs> um but uh you know and, and and at the same time like my mega drive got more and more attachments of mega cds and 32x's and this you know it's all the mega drive itself got higher and higher <laughs> and um you know but it felt like you know there was something coming out every week, every month, but that was fine because I was doing so much journalism at that time, you know, as well as presenting Bad Influence. I um, I wrote a syndicated newspaper column that went out all over the country to regional newspapers all over the country, uh, you know, uh, that were my game reviews. And I was writing, you know, game reviews for The Observer magazine. And I was doing reviews on um, BBC Radio, game reviews on Radio 5. And, um, you know, I think, uh, towards the end of it, I became the internet correspondent on Woman's Hour, and you know, and I was literally, and I was, I was making my own games, TV shows uh, for the children's channel, and so on and so forth. So it was like the throughput was very welcome because it's like you always have to have new things to say, and you want to say new things, and there's new stuff going on. And so, honestly, I think it's kind of one of those things where I was so busy and there was so much going on that I. It, you know, when that's happening, you don't really sort of pause to think, oh, gosh, this is happening really quickly, do you? So to me, that those that three, what was it, three years, a period of something like three years, I sort of think of it like a degree, because a degree, if you study a degree, it's three years, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's kind of like when you look back to your doing studying your degree, you don't think, um, do you think it, you know, loads changes when you do a degree, first year, second year, third year, and, you, you know, you pop out the other end, you know, kind of an expert on your subject sort of thing. If you say you do English, you've like covered everything, haven't you? Mm. So that's how I think of it. It was like my degree in, in games television. Well, I mean, Ravi mentioned the N64 then as well. And like I, that's one memory I've got that really stands out about Bad Influence. You know, the fact that, that that kind of few years that it was on, it was always like um, we knew about the PlayStation and we knew about the Jaguar and it was always like the Ultra 64 is coming soon and it, it was delayed for ages. But you actually went to the launch of it, I remember, in Japan. And that was like oh, such a big man. deal watching it. I mean, it must have been incredible to be there. Uh, yeah, and I guess in some ways this was the highlight of Bad Influence for me. And so I'm really glad you've picked it up. And, you know, it's so rewarding when you get these stories back. So thank you. It's so rewarding to get these stories back to kind of understand that there were other people along there on the journey with you because yeah. you don't necessarily get a sense of that at the time. I mean... You know, within Bad Influence, I was the games player. So when they, I think I realised, you know, in hindsight, when I look back, they must, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'll get this job. You know, they obviously, they were TV show makers, but to find someone who was across games and TV, because I just had like a year play, you know, because I'd had this deep introduction to all the different consoles and games through the previous TV show I'd done, which I would have loved to have done anyway but most people wouldn't have been able to afford to do that so I was just fortuitous that I'd got onto that tv show and I'd had the means to play all these different games so that's that's what gave me my start you know so because of my kind of knowledge and history and uh, you know all the things I was doing to do with games I was the real gamer at, at, at um on bad influence I mean obviously there were researchers and so forth as well who loved games and they were always playing doom behind the scenes you know like why have you done the research oh we're all linked up on doom that was the fourth se <laughs> final series um but uh you know i was i was such a died in the world gamer and like i was out there in japan you know like um to be there 
at the launch of the Ultra 64 felt like, you know, it it felt like a door opening. It really did. It felt like a door opening into a new a new era of gaming, a new era of computers, everything, because it was 3D and it was just so the way Nintendo had thought it through. It was so different. And, um, and you know, they had Mario and they had Zelda, a little, you know, the new Zelda. Um, so it was everything you could want. For me, it was everything you could want as a gamer. But you didn't ever, because we didn't have, you know, obviously Twitter and social media and emails and all the rest back then. You did it, but you didn't get the feedback at all. You just did it and you just trusted that, you know, everyone else was, you know, as pleased as you were. But, yeah, no, so it's great to hear those, those stories coming back. It was, it was incredible. I think we were the only Western journalists there. Well, what did the gaming industry think of the show then? Did you have like a lot of involvement with the industry? Um, what do you think? Well, I'd have thought you'd have kind of been like there with magazines as well, you know, kind of viewed the same and invited to the launch events. And yeah, I was quite curious to, as to how. No, they kind not of, really. Know. No, no, I'm interested because no, not really. I would say not really. Right. So it's it's a funny. Th- it was a funny thing. So back then that, that games magazines reigned supreme or that's how it seemed to us in terms of a lot of things because that's how the games pr machinery worked and i think games master seemed to be very much in that clique because they had all the games journalists on their show and they were like their target audience was like the same target audience as the games magazines and so I think it came across to me, certainly, that the games kind of the whole PR machinery and the games companies were more interested in getting that, you know, 80 percent or 90 percent in mega. I can't remember what they were called now. Super play. I like super play mm. um, uh, or whatever than they were in having a you know feature on bad. That's how it seemed to me. I mean, we did. You know, they obviously we got the bad influence got stuff from you know got some good um scoops and everything but it wasn't you know nobody was ringing up so all bowing down oh can we you know giving us special treatment is what i would say if if anything it always felt to me like the games magazines got the special treatment so and when i got invited like i used to get invited to sort of launches and parties and i've got you know a few happy tales of that and i used to get sent games and so forth but i i always felt that that was because of my regional newspaper column, my syndicated regional newspaper column. I think felt they were more interested in or my, you know, I'd, I'd write for Digitizer and I'd write for, although actually they weren't that interested in Digitizer either. You know, I'd occasionally write for games magazines or like I did a couple of things for CTW, the trade mag, that sort of thing. So they were kind of more interested in the introverted sort of, you know, sort of magazines and games specific games media than the broadcasting element of going out to people who might not, be quite such avid gamers um so it was it could be i mean obviously like there was some brilliant made some great friends with some great prs and um went to some stuff but you basically always felt a little bit on the outside of that clique which is a bit crazy because you think none of the magazines had the the circulation that you had in viewers i mean you know there's no magazines were getting five million readers yeah it is i mean yeah it is a bit crazy but um I guess from their perspective, I think I think it's about how sometimes these systems are set up that you know if getting your I guess getting your say ninety percent in Superplay or whatever I don't want, don't know why I'm choosing Superplay um, uh, in one of the magazines would 
you know, was very tangible and you could probably have a printout. This is, I've really thought about this, you can tell. Uh, you can probably have a printout of it. And also they were all, they all seem to be, I think cliques feed cliques, don't they? Mm. So it was all kind of very insular and maybe the games shops and the people that they wanted to stock their games maybe read, read, read these magazines. This is what I've been trying to think. Whereas the kind of the broader picture, I think in general, the broader picture of the broader audience back then just wasn't a thing. It was new. It was new that we were featuring games on TV. I mean, there were, and, and, and I, I, you always got the impression they'd rather, or not always, but sometimes got the impression they'd rather be on something like Games Master because that was more aimed at the sort of games magazine-y type audience. Um, and obviously some of them really saw the big picture of it kind of going out to 5 million people and how broad all that was and, and how it was broadening it out. But it really wasn't until the PlayStation 1 came out and Sony was so pop so successful in popularising video games to a wider audience it wasn't until then that really uh, any of the games or most of the games industry seemed to realize that they could be looking a bit wider than their sort of traditional sort of geeky nerdy sort of demographic that they had always aimed at well you always had the kids on the show reviewing games and they always seemed a little bit younger than the games master audience um how did you go about finding these kids and picking the ones to actually review uh well the there was a wonderful one called susan who worked on the show and that was her she was a producer and that was her department i'm not quite sure how she found them i think she went to local schools and sort of looked around they were all from you know local nearby in leeds and uh you know and they she probably i would imagine she probably like auditioned them you know found found kids who like games tried to you know find a balance of different liking different games you know just sort of almost like casting but they were all you know normal kids who went to you know schools around leeds um and uh in fact uh a couple of them i'm still in touch with so oh, wow. um sir hale i don't know if you remember sir hale yes, yeah. he was now some really big shot um executive producer in television oh, amazing <laughs> on, on light entertainment shows yeah so uh, uh, and there were, yeah, so they were. It was good to see. And the kids who came in the studio, they would. I think they would. They just found them, you know, in audiences around different schools that would come in. So, um, uh, but that was they used to do the it, it, record the children's reviews before we did the main show, and, and then slot those bits in. So we'd sort of hang around with them a bit beforehand, but and uh, watch them watch their verdicts on the different games and 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 they were they were a good mix you know i mean i was i can never forget being quite so surprised as one little girl i saw come in to do some reviews and uh, you know she was so rabidly into beat em ups and at the time that was quite shocking well you also hosted the uh, spin off show bad level 10 as well that if if memory serves that was was that filmed in an arcade um, yes that, yes yeah, that's it was. That. did you see that did yeah, I, I do remember seeing a couple of episodes of it. So that was on, was that on Children's Channel? I've got, yeah, it was definitely on Sky, wasn't it? I can't remember. Yeah. I can't remember. I think <laughs> it was on the Children's Channel, but I can't remember. Isn't that awful? No, maybe it was, you know, it may not A Children's been. Channel, yeah. Was it definitely okay. on the yeah. Children's Channel? Okay, so um, uh, Bad Level 10, that was a, yeah, that was just a spin-off show in a local arcade in Leeds. And that was just me and Steve researched it Steve was a researcher on bad influence he was a researcher on bad influence who came from the magazine CVG who I'd met on met and asked to join the show when he um I met him on a press trip to Asterix World for the Asterix game and 
that was just three of us really that was Colin the director me presenting Steve researching I'm trying to remember there was a runner as well maybe Adam but um, that was much much tinier that was a much much smaller outfit if you like and uh, you know we just got there and just had a lot it was not more like looser and you know obviously commensurate to budgets for the children's channel but at the time I think I was probably doing a lot of other shows on the children's channel possibly because I did a whole bunch like I did head to head on the children's channel that was through my tv company and that was um did you ever see head to head no I don't think I saw that one you missed the treat that's the one that's where I, when I met guru larry right no he's told me about it I think I've seen the clip on youtube yeah, yeah, he yeah. was a contestant. So it was, that was the brainchild of this guy called Rob Hart, who then went on to work for Virgin Games in LA. But um, he was um, a director at the Children's Channel. And I came to him with this idea for a game. You know, these I just said, oh, games are so brilliant. They have these brilliant two-player modes. Let's just have a competition where you kind of play each other at a game, say Mario Kart, winner stays on every day, winner stays on, winner stays on. After 10 shows, you get a prize if you've done it, whatever. Really simple, five-minute five minute shows, just little five-minute shows that they dot into the channel. Little, um, little uh, just little breaths, you know, really. Um, and uh, it was his idea to have that giant brain. So they'd be playing, they'd be playing a game across that giant brain and they'd win brain trophies. And then this other director came along and decided to make it in 3D. So we did head-to-head in 3D, and um, in order to make it 3D, he investigated all the different ways of making 3D shows, and he was inspired by the Kama Sutra in 3D, in which a couple (laughs) apparently, (laughs) a couple was on this giant giant bed, a spinning bed, because, you know, it was this sort of 3D where, a bit like parallax, parallax, I guess, in a way, where if you've got sort of movement at different speeds, it can appear to give depth so um so we put the the contestants on this giant turntable with this giant and playing in the consoles set in this giant brain playing across you know the giant brain to each other on this giant spinning turntable for head to head in 3d uh the days and then i made cheat cheat flash for um the children's channel which was um and the a to z and Z to A of video games. So there's a whole bunch of stuff I did uh, for the children's channel, which was really, really a laugh because, like, unlike Bad Influence, which was going out to five million people, this was basically, you know, like kind of low budget satellite TV that hardly anyone watched. So you could just, you know, mess about basically, and uh, and uh, there was no one, <laughs> no one watching to stop you. So you were actually included in Micro Machines too as a character. How did you get involved? And that must have been fun. Yeah, um, yeah, it's brilliant to be in Micro Machines too. The best thing about it is that you know when you when you agree to do something like that, you can't possibly know if the game's going to be any good or not, really. So it's, you know, imagine if in the first or second series they, they'd asked me to be in Rise of the Robots, I would have been like, yeah, <laughs> I <don't know."> oh. <laughs> Um, so Micro Machines too. Like I, we all knew Micro Machines was a good game, so it seemed like a good punt. And they, actually, they rang me up and they said, "Would you be a driver in Micro Machines too?" And I said, "Yes, on one condition: that when it's AI, when I'm an AI driver, I want to be the fastest." Nice. And because the real reason I said that was because I was just terrified that they would make me the slowest. Because um, when I play uh, Mario Kart, 
I don't know. I've always, I don't, on the snares, I'd always got under the impression that Bowser's the slowest when you're playing the AI characters. And, I, and, and it's like, oh, here comes Bowser, you know, who'd be Bowser? And it's like, I didn't want to be the Bowser, you know, of Micro Machines. So I said, can I be the fastest? And they said, well, no, you can't be the fastest because Spider, Spider's always the fastest. We've established that in Micro Machines 1. And I accepted that. And I said, well, can I be the second fastest? They said, yeah, okay. So I don't know. I don't know if that ever happened, if I'm the second fastest AI in, um, in Muck Machines 2. But that was my, uh, that's what they said they'd do. I feel like I need to play it again now to, uh, to test it out. <laughs> yeah, when you let me, when, let me know. Let me know. I'd love to know. They might have just got spiteful and like, ah, we will teach her for being demanding. <laughs> well, you've been in a few games as well where we were just talking earlier about Normality Inc. as well. So could you just tell us about a few games that you've been in? Um, so, yeah, so Normality Inc. was another one. Now, I wrote about the games that I've been in for uh, Guru Larry's book Fact Hunt. And I did that about a year ago and I'm <laughs> struggling to remember because <laughs> at the time I was like, what, what was it again? But Normality Inc., um, I did motion capture for uh, we did a feature on Bad Influence about how they had the first motion capture studio in Europe and we were demonstrating how motion capture worked and it was, you know, so wow and new and, oh, you put these bubbles on and the, the cameras recognise the lights and then the computer, you know, could draw the skeleton from the bubbles, you know, all of that that, you know, everyone does every day now on, uh, you know, skeleton recognition on camera things on home consoles, but it was a big deal back then, of course um so and I was so I was I was a character character was based on my movements basically there was a Peter Gabriel game do you remember Peter Gabriel's Eve um I it rings a bell but yeah um. (laughs) I didn't expect don't worry I didn't expect you to say yes it was a multimedia art project it wasn't so much a game although there were sort of it was game like in some respects but Peter Gabriel invested a fortune into this game called into this software package called Eve and um, I did some interviews for it and bits and pieces and then a friend of mine who's a computer journalist called Tim Norris emailed me a couple of years later and said um have you ever fallen out of a suitcase and said I can't remember what he said have you ever fallen out of a suitcase and said something like you can be whoever you want to on the internet or something like that and I'm like uh not that I recall, <laughs> he told me that apparently this is what happens in the uh, in this Eve game. So I might be I might be re- retelling that slightly incorrectly, but obviously something quite weird. Has, you know, I, I've never played it. I got sent a copy, um, and I don't think, and I've probably got it in my loft, but um, but I don't didn't ever find that bit. <laughs> I'm looking at a, at a couple of screen grabs of it now. It looks a bit surreal. <laughs> All right, if it's Peter Gabriel, it will yeah. be surreal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what else? Okay, so there's a game, a Gabriel Knight Two. I'm an, I'm an extra in Gabriel Knight Two. Oh, amazing! Uh, which was a big full motion video game. You know, back in the uh, mid '90s, everyone was everyone thought full motion video games were the next big thing. Interactive movies, all of that. And uh, we did something about went to Hollywood and did some filming on Bad Influence about how all that would, you know, how how all that worked. So basically, it was a film about a film shoot because that's mostly mostly how the FMV was made. Um, what else? Micro Machines. Have I mentioned five yet? No. Five? No, no. What if I missed out? I've missed something out. I'm sure there are five. Normality Inc., Gabriel Knight to... Eve, 
Micro Machines. One more. Oh, man. You can have to fact hunt. Get fact hunt. Yeah, get get Larry's book. It's in there. (laughs) I mean, you mentioned then about, you know, when you went to Hollywood, obviously in Series 4 of uh, Bad Influence, you kind of changed from in-studio to presenting the Global Reports. Um, Why did this change happen then? And what kind of memories do you have of the travels then? I know we've talked about the N64 already. Yeah. I can't really remember why it happened. All I can remember is that I was so I felt like I'd won the jackpot. I bet. <laughs> Yay! Because um, <laughs> it was brilliant. Because not only did I get to go off and do all the global reports, but they gave me my own my own bit to write and present. So there was a bit called Virtual Violet, like a three minute column, if you like, um, opinion piece. So every week. I would do my sort of three minute, my, you know, I can remember covering things like, uh, oh, the early internet. And um, I can remember doing one that was spun off from Command and Conquer, the new Command and Conquer game where you could play the baddies about the, the joy of being the baddie in a game and stuff like that. So it's just generally sort of opinion pieces, thought pieces, but it, me in front of a green screen and sort of like clips from games and illustrating uh, illustrating my ideas and my thoughts about about gaming issues or gaming hardware or gaming, you know, ideas at the time. And uh, I think maybe they just thought this was played to my strengths, you know, because I was all, you know, I was writing columns and writing and writing about games. And um, I guess they wanted, to, I don't know, I can't remember why Z Wright left. I can't remember Namrud left in that series. There was a big yeah. reshuffle. And, I, and I'm not quite sure why it was. You know, I guess maybe after three series, you know, maybe commissioners come in and say, oh, we need, maybe we need to change it up a bit. And they got a new presenter in the studio, Sonia. Yeah. It might have been that they wanted more female, it might have been they wanted more female presence to keep it, that 50-50 balance that I told you about that was so mm-hmm. important to us, to have female, more female role models maybe. And they might have thought, oh, well, we then need to get another, you know, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. But maybe all those things came into play. I can't quite recall. I was just delighted. Well, why did this show end? And there were changes at, at CITV, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm really wrecking my brain now. So it went for four series. And it was a bit weird the way it ended when it did, because I can remember the last series we were publicising, we were talking about PS1, and it was like, oh, this is just around the corner, the, you know, the PlayStation. And then we never quite got to that next generation. But uh, I think there were big changes at CITV. Um, it wasn't CITV wasn't much longer for this world after Bad Influence in a way, was it? It sort of um, when did it? Oh, no, it was. It was another five years. It was when I, I was doing. I forget the, I had an SMTV live period and then uh, yeah, slowly tailed off. But I, of course, I went on to. I was doing my own shows at this point, and I went on to think. Did I take a little bit of a break? And then I took a bit of a break from game stuff because I, you know, I, I, I things started repeating. Do you know that feeling about things repeating when you've been doing something for long enough and you sort of get stuff in and you're like, oh, I've been here before. Yeah. Um, and so I took a little. Oh, I went more into science coverage and science and engineering and I computers and the internet and more kind of broader, kind of more grown up stuff. I did a lot of stuff for the World Service. I had my own show on World Service uh, Radio about. Um, technology technology across the world and stuff like that so i kind of grew up a bit and then uh, before before then diving back into games for gamepad so you know (laughs) (laughs) that was a daily show wasn't it on bravo gamepad gamepad did go out every day but um but actually we made we would make them in batches so i mean how that started off was um 
I um I got asked to do a GameSpot. Do you remember the website GameSpot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got asked to present GameSpot TV, which was just like a reversioned version of an American show. And um, I had kids at this point, and this was after I'd done uh, the big, the uh, the Big Bang for the. I'd done lots of science and engineering, and I'd had I'd I'd got kids at this point, and they asked me to present it. And I hadn't done games for a little while, and I thought or thought about, oh, should I, shouldn't I? But to be honest, you know, I like had two small children and not much work, so I said yes. And I presented that just the just as a presenter, and it was really fun, and it was so brilliant to get back into games and to see what I'd sort of been missing while I hadn't been quite so, you know, involved in it all. And then for the next series, uh, the TV channel asked me to my company to make to make it from then on and oh no so we made GameSpot and then we made GamePad at Bravo and then my company made GamePad 2, GamePad 3 and GamePad 4 and uh, that was a real laugh because that was the whole era of um, that was the tail end of Dreamcast so that was Xbox help me out here GameCube GameCube yes it would have been GameCube so kind of that, going into the PS2, maybe. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, was it? Yeah, we had loads and loads of of PS2 stuff. Exactly, PS2, PS2 era. That's right. Exactly. Um, so uh, we, you know, so it was that was like a whole new sort of generation of stuff. So it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And at that point, we had our own production company, and I was like running it, and writing it, and like my kids were like in the office you know <laughs> and uh yeah that was a happy family and then we made that in batches you see we made that for we'd make I don't know how I remember how many now 10 20 20 shows maybe and then they would put it out every day and then they would repeat it and then they would repeat it and they would repeat it and so that's how Bravo seemed to operate that they you know it would they you know they would repeat the heck out of everything but so we tried to make the shows as far as you can you know as untied to you know, events and news, if you see what I mean, because we knew it would be, we can't completely do that with games, but we, we, you know, but we knew they would repeat it. So we tried to make it as safe, you know, or at least not be silly about what we were doing. Um, but um, yeah, that's no, brilliant. It's been incredible getting your memories about, you know, your, your time in gaming television. I mean, here we are like 25 years later, still talking about bad influence. I mean, what, why do you think it's so fondly remembered all these years on? Do you know what? Even though I sort of talk from my perspective of making a lot of games TV on, on you know, on satellite and the children's channel and so forth, the only mainstream games television I did was Bad Influence. Mm. And there's partly a reason for that, because there was very little mainstream games television. I mean, even things like, um, you know, Games Master, okay, it was broadcast, you know, it's sort of mainstream, but it was still in that sort of niche slot you know that channel four one was it called bits yeah was yeah it bits? that was in a very late night sort of slot so you know that sort of getting that big audience that proper big everyone was watching an audience like bad influences the one and you know what i feel so lucky because you know that was the time i don't know what stars aligned that allowed a tv show with video games coverage to appear in such a mainstream slot because i can tell you that i have had those conversations with commissioning editors, you know, on, you know, the main channels ever, you know, ever since for years I had them, I could get shows away on the satellites on games. I could never get them away any more away on the main channels. And there was just something about TV commissioners. I used to always think it was that they were, 
because they all so many of them had arts backgrounds because you know I do a lot of computers and technology and science programming you know engineering all of that and all those shows are a bit harder to get away I've I feel maybe it's just my perspective maybe everyone says the same thing but I just wondered if it was just not never quite considered cool enough and so and now I think you kind of think it's personally think it's all had its day in a sense on mainstream TV, and I tell you why, because I think I'm so lucky. I got that one golden period when no one could get hold of any footage. Like you know, we were so excited to see. Oh, there's a bit of footage of a new game. The only thing you could get was in a magazine. But now you know everyone can get hold of that footage, and they can all make their own TV shows about it on the internet, and that's fantastic. People can find what they want now on the internet. So I don't really think, I don't really see a need for that sort of show, mainstream show, again. So it kind of was of its kind of era and could only have happened then. And, you know, and we were lucky for that. And we were also lucky that people couldn't, like, criticise us on Twitter the whole time we were on television. That's the other thing I'm grateful for. <laughs> I, I, I also think you guys were, like, the, the main kind of source of female representation in games. There was, I think, without bad influence, it would have been a very kind of boys' clubby uh, world in video games in the 90s. And I really, really feel lucky for that as well because, you know, it's like the amount of women who have got in touch with me and said, you know, I'm a programmer now, but I watched Bad Influence and I, you know, I just thought it was me. And, you know, obviously I had that feeling when I, you know, you said to me right at the start of this, you know, were you always into computers? And my answer was yes. But I was one of three girls in the entire year, you know, who yeah. wanted who wanted to do that. And I, I have no idea to this day. I, I used to always baffle me why other girls didn't want, didn't seem to want to play games, video games. It, I found it completely incomprehensible that you wouldn't just want to, you know, get involved. And I, but I don't think, you know, I was obviously wasn't the only one and haven't been the only one. And it's just one of those sort of things where I think kind of almost like the blindfold has slowly come off society that people kind of, oh, yeah, hang on, it is okay. And, I, you know, and that's something that happens slowly. But while that whole process has happened, there have been, you know, girls, women who have been able to see me being enthusiastic about games as a role model. And that's like, that's, you know, that's so amazing. That's, you know, I'm so thrilled that that's the case. That's just brilliant. Uh, recently, you did an interview with Brenda Romero at the uh, Cambridge Computer Centre. Um, are you still involved in the gaming world? And what are you up to nowadays? I'm involved in writing for games these days so that interview with Brenda which I was so honoured to be asked to do I don't normally do that kind of thing these days but I couldn't turn it down it was brilliant uh that's atypical of what I do but um you might recall that I said right at the beginning that I always wanted to be a writer and that was my whole impetus for going off and studying yep. the feet of Tolkien well I actually nowadays I write for films and games and immersive and interactive experiences in public spaces. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but what it basically means is um, all kinds of things, but quite often at kind of um, museums and galleries and um, visitor attractions from theme parks to the Science Museum. You might come across a film or a game or a VR experience or a gesture recognition sort of device thing 
um, that would have a story. And the sort of thing I do is mostly um, factual entertainment. So just like the days of Bad Influence, where I told you that Bad Influence was, you, you mentioned Games Master, that was an entertainment show, but Bad Influence was factual entertainment. We were telling you something about the world through kind of games and sort of fun, if you like. And so that's what I still do. So like, I will, you know, sort of serious games. So you, I will find that information about, I don't know, something about how the world works and it will be a gaming experience around that that's, that's for a public space or it will be an immersive film that is designed to kind of put you in a certain emotional state or make you feel a certain way, a game with a purpose. Um, so that's my main things that I do but I also um, I do write for I have done some writing for games you know as in traditional type games on PC and so forth unfortunately um, all the ones I've ever worked on have be, have never seen the light of day and I'm sure that from doing all these interviews uh, for the retro hour um, that you have come across a lot of those would you say that yeah yeah, yeah quite um... common. but um, but it doesn't mean that, that that the work doesn't go in and you don't sort of like Get the, get the full experience. Um, so, uh, yeah, so just various different kinds of games, immersive experiences, all the rest of it, but just the writing side these days, which is which is tremendous. Oh, well, Violet, it's been an absolute pleasure getting these stories from your, your, your time on gaming television. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for asking me. It's like, I think I was like really finding it struggling to get the memories at the beginning there, but like by the end they were like, it's, it's funny to kind of open up your sort of get into the mode you kind of realize how much how much there is there to talk about actually isn't it?